Hey everybody, it's Eric Torenberg, co-founder, partner of Village Global, a network-driven venture firm. And this is Venture Stories, a podcast covering topics relating to tech and business with world-leading experts. Hey everybody, and welcome to another episode of Venture Stories by Village Global. I'm here today with two very special guests, repeat guest and fan favorite, Brian Frank, uh, network leader at Village Global and uh, founder and, and partner at uh, FTW, and Rob Reinhardt, founder Soylent and general partner at Mars Bio. Uh, Rob, uh, Brian, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having us. Yeah, thanks for having us here. Let's dive right in. You guys both uh, have your own funds. Why don't you talk about your investment thesis, where you are investing, where you're not investing, where you're excited about. Rob, why don't we start with you? Sure. Um, our investment thesis, I think, is driven by uh, confidence in biology being the next golden age. You know, we've seen humanity be transformed by hardware, software, aviation, aerospace, and we really think that biology is now the science that is affecting every industry. So we invest across life sciences and biotech. Um, we definitely look at um, therapeutics, especially exciting um, next-generation therapeutics and devices. Um, we're also very excited about synthetic biology, biomanufacturing, uh, and consumer products made through biological techniques, and especially a lot of exciting innovation in the agriculture and food space, which I would love to dive more into today. Cool. And we at FTW Ventures focuses focus on um, innovations for the food system. And so our thesis is pretty simple. Um, we believe the food system needs to be reinvented to scale to feed 10 billion people on the planet by 2050. And current practices will not meet our needs, um, both in their productivity, uh, capabilities, and ability to feed people the nutrition that they need to sustain themselves for a healthy and happy life. And so uh, like Rob, we also invest in biotechnologies and synthetic biology and computational biology, as well as genetic. Uh, genetics, uh, genetic research and genetic work, um, as well as metabolism and gut health. Uh, on top of that, we also look at investments in hardware and automation because we have severe challenges with getting the products out of our farms and producing them in new and novel ways with new technologies uh, that require big fermentation tanks or other hardware or piece of automation equipment, as well as we invest in software and SaaS, which is the underpinning of every industry to you know plan better, predict better, and analyze uh, their output. And finally, we also do novel products and ingredients. Uh, we'll talk a little bit about some of those companies in our portfolio that are really exciting in those spaces, but we're seeing a revolution in terms of plant-based eating and uh, new forms of protein and other macronutrients that can uh, help sustain the planet. I'm curious if we can make sort of a little bit of market map in terms of where you guys are most excited. Like what would be, what's on your request for startups, so to speak? Where, where do you want to see more innovation, more startups uh, happening? Or or where you, do you think that is going to be much bigger than what it is right now in terms of startup activity? Yeah, I think one of the areas, and I think uh, Rob and I probably pretty much agree on this one, which is um, new and novel ways to create the uh, basis of the food that we eat in uh, ways that can be sustainably produced, profitably produced, um, and can scale with the the needs across the world. Um, and so we're seeing uh, – Specifically in fermentation, we're seeing a whole revolution of new high-value products that are being created through this age-old phenomenon of growing things where a yeast or bacteria eat one substance and spit out another. And so there's a lot of opportunity in that space to grow a number of high-value products. Um, I would say for FTW going beyond that, it's just the idea of deep sciences and deep tech playing a much broader role within the food system. These are all traditional industries that have 
become fat and happy on you know the the revenues that they've been seeing to date. But now the major companies in the spaces are being hammered by the realities of the world. Consumers don't necessarily want their products produced in those ways. They're not giving them the nutrients that they need, and they're not able to scale to meet demands of the future generations. And so um, anywhere that deep tech can help solve for those challenges, either as new novel companies that start off with the potential of growing a whole massive industry behind them. I mean, we can just take Beyond Meat as an example, right, has basically put plant-based eating in the zeitgeist of the world by having this massive, you know, IPO success. Two things that will simply increase productivity and enhance the aspects of the food system that we need to increase, you know, through the use of these sciences. Uh, I agree. And I see two really exciting capabilities that are new and we should take advantage of. One is that for the, you know, global macros and for the nutrition, um, that is necessary to feed humanity, we can make the same things in new and better and more efficient and more sustainable ways. The other trend that frankly I think more should people should be looking at is the capabilities to make entirely new things. Most of the things we eat today were not what people were eating thousands of years ago. Um, new food products do come on the market. New sources of protein, carbohydrates, uh, fats uh, come on the market. And I think we should both be looking at better ways to make what exists and also what is now possible to make that was not possible before. And I think this is even bigger than food. This applies to all materials. Um, you know, everything that we have at some point comes from the earth. And um, I think that it's really exciting that um, we can push the envelope in terms of what uh, material properties are possible, you know, whether they confer a benefit to food or a new type of plastic or a new type of fiber for con construction or, or, or thread. Uh, you know, I think we should be focusing a lot more on what new things we can make um, in addition to better ways to make um, existing products. I think that's a great topic. We uh, One of the areas that you and I haven't gone into yet was edible packaging or uh, bio uh, peels that can go over fruits, vegetables, and products. And it's like, we've been living in this plastics world for so long, we've We've assumed that that's how it has to work. Everything gets wrapped in a plastic sheath and then gets sold, you know, at, at market and stuff like that. But you've got appeal sciences, uh, and Cambridge crops and other people that are, you know, trying to create these edible, you know, uh, skins. Um, and it's a new way to package products, right? And, and to prevent mold and, and, and other things. So I don't know what your thoughts are on kind of the bios for materials, specifically in the food industry, like some of the areas we should be going into. Food packaging is a very exciting market because it's it's very challenging. You need something that's very consistent. Um, you know, there are health concerns on the line if if uh, the product doesn't work as designed, and there's also enormous cost pressure. But if you get something right, the market is enormous. Um, this is, these are products that are, you know, all around us. They're used by a lot of people every day. So if you do break in, the market is enormous. Yeah. I was, uh, through another program, I was advising a company called Lollyware and they're making straws, uh, using seaweed as their initial feedstock. But they were thinking well beyond that. Like, what is the future of, uh, plastics products and how do we make them either edible or biodegradable? And again, this is where science really like excels is unlocking those potentials and those opportunities yeah. when we had originally assumed it just comes from the chemicals that we make today in the same way. And so we're looking at chemical production and removing chemicals and making things naturally, but we're making them in new and novel ways. And I think that that's the most exciting thing is when you start thinking, okay, we don't have to accept hundred years of of tradition of how the product industry has done this. And then you get these founders that are just going off the wall with the things that they want to make using biosciences, right? And that's what I think gets Rob and I really excited. We, we also don't have to get rid of plastics. That's Why right. don't we just dive into the problems with plastics and, and fix those? 
Um, you can make plastic out of any oil. You can make oil out of algae. Um, you know, you can make plastics without petroleum. And I think that that is on the verge of happening. And I think that brings up another topic that I'd love to dive into, which is um, where traditional agriculture and uh, uh, deep science and genetic modification, you know, play a commensurate role or they do they play an antagonistic role? Meaning, are we trying to replace everything with GMOs or with scientific manipulation? Or we should we also be trying to make the traditional manufacturing or processes better using science? And I know that that's like – we talked about lists before the why not both yeah exactly and so like can you do GMOs and plant breeding simultaneously to produce great products and should you be yeah. using those in concert? Why do we? It might be fun to talk for a minute about the specifics of uh, plant breeding and how to modify plant genetics. What's the best way? What are the what are some of the different ways and and what are the different trade offs? For example, I have a plant that does this. I want it to do something different. Let's say I want to make a a plant glow red. Why not? Let's have some fun. So let's say you're going to take a gene called. Um, RFP, a red fluorescent protein, and you, and you want to put that in the plant. You know, first, where are we going to get that gene? You know, you can't just kind of like rub it on the leaves and, and make sure it's going to get in there. You, you know, you want to insert it more precisely. And for a long time, the, uh, a common way of doing that was literally a gun, a gene gun that has, uh, used compressed air to, um, and would put genes on, uh, particles of metal and shoot them at very high velocity into the cells. And so the cell wall of, uh, plants are very rigid or very tough. And these particles would get into the cell, but as you can imagine, there's enormous collateral damage. Most of the cells just up and die. Those that take the gene may not take it up and start using it. So over the years, we've developed more and more precise methods. You know, I've seen algae engineers focus on the chloroplast uh, instead of the nuclear genome, something easier to target. Uh, CRISPR, of course, is something that's um, being uh, more commonly used in plant genetics. A technology that I'm particularly interested is in is agrobacterium. So agrobacterium, if you ever see like a lump on the side of a tree, that's an infection. Um, and it's this bacteria that has become very astute at inserting um, essentially viral DNA or plasmid into plant cells. Not too different from CRISPR. We, we basically hijacked an infection uh, or, or, or immune um, system concept from these, from these single-celled organisms. So this agrobacterium, um, they can insert their uh, gene through the plant cell wall, but it gets integrated somewhat randomly. And so I think a very exciting idea would be to take the kind of insertion precision and efficiency. Agrobacterium works incredibly efficient. You know, you shoot something with a gene gun, maybe 0.1% of your cells are actually going to be effectively transformed. And even then, where is it going to end up in the genome? And is it going to express, you know, it's, it's a lot of brute force and trial and error. Um, agrobacterium, it's more like a sniper rifle. You know, you, you get in, but how that problem remains after you get in, where in the genome are you going to integrate? That's an issue. And so I think it would be exciting to, um, kind of combine the efficiency of agrobacterium with the precision of CRISPR Cas9 and have this kind of really precision, um, plant genome editing tool. Yeah, for the scientists that aren't uh, that for the non-scientists listening to this podcast, CRISPR is basically a digital scissor that allows you to snip out uh, sequences in the DNA that allow you to be very precise about uh, traits that you want to change within a, in a in a plant. But deciding where to do that is one of the big benefits of CRISPR is finding those those locations under which those properties, like the browning of an apple, and like the cosmic crisp apple, is a good example. We just now have a product that has been CRISPR modified to remove the browning gene, and so like you say, like there's this amazing technology that's relatively newly discovered that is probably one of the biggest 
scientific breakthroughs in the last 20 years. I think uh, the lab that developed it was up for some prizes and things like that. And so I, we see a lot of things just on the horizon. And now the question is, where do we as a culture and we as investors really want to spend our time, energy, money? I think the investors, and I'm going to make a a guess here, the investors are probably a little ahead of where culture and the community and, and the general public want to be looking at these things. I think this was always a challenge you know, with Soylent and how Soylent was marketed as pro-GMO, right? And so how do we change that perception or how do we improve the perception of science to make better food is just continuing on with what we've always done in history. When we applied fire, we changed the properties of food. And, exactly. and But I think that that hasn't yet permeated into the cultural norm, right, in terms of what people really think about putting in their body. Well, maybe that's because we haven't yet gotten to the point where we've used this technology to make products that are better enough to get people to really pay attention. You know, once you started using fire in cooking, I wonder if it, if it even really tasted better. You know, maybe that's an evolved response. But what it definitely did was make the food safer. Yeah. So people that ate cooked food, they would survive. You know, that's a, that's a very easy one. And then maybe it also over time, converted things that weren't edible into edible because it yeah. broke down the cell bonds. Yeah. And right. And so like yeah. you have a lot of things that we've We've taken for granted that are natural processes, and I use air quotes, and I know you can't really hear that on a podcast, so that's why I'm saying it. But we've been doing this for so long, I think that uh, we're now making ma- massive leaps forward, and I- I'm wondering how we bring consumers along with it. Because I worry not just about the innovation in science and forming that. I also want the consumers to want that and de- demand it and desire it. And I think the number one thing that we always look for is, is it a desirable product? Is it tasty? Is it 10 times better than what's on the market? Is it 10 times more efficient? You know, 100 times more efficient in some cases. Yeah, you don't, you don't want to be a, a, a solution looking for a problem. That's right. You know, let's say you burn millions of dollars making basil that glows red. You know, did, did anyone really want that product? Did anyone really ask for that product? Now, at the same time, most consumers don't know what science has made possible. And so, you know, until you get to the market a little bit and until you start getting some consumer feedback, maybe you were wrong about what the best part of your product was. Maybe you were wrong about who your initial customer was. That's why I think it's really important to get to the market earlier. And that's why I think that now is a great time for biology because you don't need a billion dollar lab and you don't need to be a giant biotech company to make something. You know, there's this incredible biohacker movement of people working in sheds and and kitchens and um, garages. And, you know, you can buy tools off the internet for, you know, the cost of a nice dinner and make something that used to take a multi-million dollar research lab and people are, are, are doing this and it's really exciting. Does the AWS for that exist yet? Not quite. Um, I mean, I will give a, a shout out to one of my favorite sites, the Odin. Uh, it definitely has uh, its its detractors, but I, I think in general, more energy behind this hacker movement uh, is, is good. Um, you know, you don't necessarily need a PhD in biology. Certainly, certainly helps, but um, it's not in the reach of, of everybody. And you know, a brain is a brain. Like you can learn, you can learn anything. And maybe you're a little smarter and more capable than you, than, than you initially thought. You know, you never really know until you try. And the downside of trying to do some of these biohacker experiments is very, very low. No matter what, you're going to learn something. And you're probably not a lot, out a lot of time and you're probably not out a lot of money. And you'd probably be surprised that all you might need is the kitchen that you already have. If we break down what you meant by AWS for this industry, I think there's a number of different things like AWS supplies that we need to discuss and we need to talk about. One is the infrastructure on which to run best practices and to run at scale, right? I'd say, again, going back to, I think, Rob and our equal interest in fermentation, there is really yet to be at scale fermentation of 
high value proteins and things like that specifically for certain food related initiatives. There's a ton of work going on in that space and there's a ton of companies that are trying to get into that space. I'll give a shout out to one of my companies, Geltor, which does collagen and gelatin through, through fermentation, um, doing it in the cosmetic space, but always had an intention to want to go into food products. The problem is doing it at a commodity price point, right? And getting it to scale. And so the infrastructure doesn't necessarily exist. I mean, the amazing thing is the fermenters exist, but they happen to be in breweries. So like AB InBev and Miller Coors probably have some of the largest quantity of fermentation capacity, but they're using it to brew beer um, or in some cases kombucha actually too. Um, but they have really yet got not gotten in the space. We're starting to see all these biomanufacturing facilities worldwide now go like, oh my gosh, there's so many other things we can use this infrastructure for. And maybe there's extra downstream processing that they need to add on, but they want to innovate in that direction. So I'm starting to see inklings, and I don't know if you are, of people trying to innovate in that pathway. I think one good shout out that we both know is Will Patrick and the culture biosciences guys that are building strain development. And so at scale, you can do multiple different strain development tests and then select a strain that then can go into larger scale fermenters. And so there's an industry now being built for the infrastructure. The other thing is frameworks. And so when you think about AWS, right, it's like, oh, I want to build a IoT button that does X. Well, they give you the framework to get started with and then run it on their hardware and stuff like that. I think that gets to be harder because currently all the best knowledge is locked either in labs or in large manufacturers of other products. And we're just starting to see the diaspora of founders leaving these great labs and leaving these large corporates going like, I think we can do more than making you know a chemical replacement for tire additives or something like that. And they're going, I actually want to do something bigger and better for the world. And so I want to go into the food industry. And so um, I was recently down at uh, an amazing micro-fermentation workshop where like all these big labs and, and I was talking to all these big facilities like DuPont and CP Kelco and things like that that make a ton of products and ingredients. And they're all like, well, we want to do more. Like we're, we're inspired by startup culture, like going fast and breaking things in this space. And so how do we get involved in that innovation? So there's more and more of these companies showing up in Silicon Valley. And there's more and more of these companies going to startups and going, we want to partner with you. Now, my question is, do they want to partner because they want to ingest that knowledge and take it in and make the bigger company stronger? Or do they actually want to bring knowledge out of their walls to actually grow a startup community that will then build more better products? And maybe acquisition targets for them down the road. Yeah. And also maybe to these uh, bigger companies, please decide on a strategy before spending a lot of time with the founders. We see this a lot where all these big companies are, oh, we're really excited about this area. And, you know, they have this big name behind them. So all this, all the founders want to talk to them, but then they really, there's no follow up. They just, and I, I don't think it's, you know, malicious. I don't think they're trying to steal their IP. I, I think they just are, you know, don't really know what to do. And, um, you know, there's a lot of very specific ways that large companies can help, um, you know, financing, uh, incubators through investments or grants, accelerators, um, you know, corporate venture programs that do a mix of, uh, direct investments and LP positions. I think that works great. Or just let your scientists spend some time helping scale up a small startup and stuff like that. You know, like yeah, there's or, so much knowledge and expertise. Or, that I mean, if, if you sign a deal with a startup, please give them some cash. They, <laughs> they, they really need it. Yeah. You know, I just, I just see a lot of these big companies that, you know, uh, frankly waste a lot of founders time because they haven't really figured out their strategy or, or you know, they have to get through seven layers of, of bureaucracy. And, you know, I, I have some sympathy for that, but, you know, please get through the bureaucracy first and then like decide on a strategy and then go and execute because there's a lot of value to be gained, um, by these big companies. But I think there's some, some really specific specific ways to do that. And if you're just interested in an area, you know, decide on a strategy before talking to the founders. Well, I think they realize that fundamentally they're behind in innovation. 
and the guys in the startup with two guys or two girls in a garage, you know, sciencing the shit out of this stuff is going to move faster and break things and find new pathways than they ever could with all their bureaucracy and the, and the, ta- the talent that's locked up, the, but the bureaucracy and the, I would say the number one thing is always the inability to fail. Like founders love to fail because they learn something every time they fail and then they move forward to the next stage, which ideally leads them to a massive success. In corporations, you don't have that luxury. And so they're looking at startups going like, hey, this is our way to learn. And I think you're right. It's a bad way to learn because you're wasting someone else's time. Mm -hmm. But they realize that they need that knowledge, expertise, and focus on these specific problems. And the startups need the big companies. They, they need to know how things work at a big scale. And big companies are really good at, at, at polishing and professionalizing and distributing. Uh, and these are something that the startups are, are not good at. So I definitely think that there's a, a mutually beneficial way uh, to work together. How do you see the relationship between startups and incumbents changing in the next five, next t- 10 years, like in terms of the power dynamics in the industry, like, you know, the opportunities for startups relative to incumbents? How do you see that play out? In this industry, it's it's a rising tide. I think the startups are going to do great. I think the big com- established players are, are are going to do great. I I think just focusing on this area and and being patient and taking risks um, and being a little open minded about um, you know what your next um, vertical might be to the big companies and to the founders being open minded um, about you know talking to these big companies. Um, you know, there's other than the time, there's, there's little downside, you know, help, help them out too. But I, I think, you know, being, this is just a really exciting time for this area. And I think it's going to be a win-win. I think there's a couple different things that I look at. Um, and there's a historical perspective that I want to bring to this discussion. One is I agree with Rob that they should be financiers. If they realize that there is innovation challenges at their organizations, they should leverage the startup community to find that innovation and then to ultimately bring that stuff in-house. And so traditionally, in most exit cases, startups end up getting acquired by big companies or by PE. It's a very narrow pipeline of people that actually get to IPO and stuff like that. So I see them as the granddaddies of this industry that could help this industry grow and then potentially reap the benefit by bringing in, you know, multi hundreds of millions of dollars of acquisition that can then extend them into new lines of business or change their organization or fundamentally change the DNA of their company in the long run. Um, I think Tyson Ventures is one of my examples of doing this very well, which is getting involved in the plant-based community, rebranding the company not as a uh, traditional meat company, but as a protein company. And so they've they've made the steps and they've started putting money on the other side of the table, whereas they have been a traditional meat provider. But then I look at the other side of the coin, which is we had this run in the 2000s when the mobile industry took off. And you had all of these big corporations show up in Silicon Valley, set up offices, set up CVC arms. I mean, you could run up and down 101 and all the major telcos had either some CVC arm or some incubation or acceleration house. How many of those are left? It's like SoftBank and actually Orange France Telecom still has an office here in the city. And they all retreated because they – they didn't realize what their role to play was in the ecosystem and how to effectively do that. They thought if they they send their CXOs to Silicon Valley one time every you know six months, maybe a year, that they would suck up all this innovation. And I don't think that's how it happens. You actually have to be participatory and you have to be a little humble. And I think it's hard for big executives that are making their multi-million dollar salaries to be humble that some kid coming out of Stanford or Berkeley or UC Davis or UC Irvine right, or, or Riverside, um, is going to have some knowledge or expertise that's going to energize their company or energize them. And so that's what – whenever we meet these big companies is you have to be humble enough to have that conversation that someone could literally walk in and change your business. Because you know what? Not everybody can spot in Elon Musk or Travis Kalanick day one. 
You just have to be open to it. And that's the first job of uh, that. And, and even, even if they don't, they're probably going to learn something. That's right. I think there's very little downside, you know, for a, for a corporation to just carve off a not a, an enormous amount of capital. It doesn't take a lot to make a difference in the startup industry. That's one reason why it's, it's so great. Corporate VC, corporate VC can work really well. There's some really great corporate VCs out there. You don't have to be as big as a soft bank. There's definitely some small corporate VCs, especially in the food and ag space that really make an impact. And they're, uh, some of them are really good at what they do. You know, it's just like a business, just like a venture person. They, they, they construct their portfolio. They come up with a strategy and they execute on it and they do what they say they're going to do. And it doesn't cost them that much. You know, for example, a lot of them, they may rarely uh, lead deals. You know, they, uh, tend to, they tend to follow and they tend to take some LP positions. And, you know, no matter really the performance of the CVC portfolio, they make all the connections and make all the learnings, um, that they wanted to. And more often than not, they, do get a line on some really interesting acquisition targets or the equity becomes incredibly valuable in and of itself. Did you take strategic corporate money in Soylent? Uh, we did not, but I did take some for the fund. So what are the big companies today in, in the space? We talk about Soylent, Memphis Meats, Beyond Meat. What, what are some of the other big companies today? And then, then I want to ask, you know, we come to this episode five years from now, 10 years from now, what are the big companies we'll be talking about then? Maybe they don't exist today or maybe they're, they're, you know, they're small today. How, how do we think about that? I mean, in the synthetic biology space overall, um, Twist Bioscience is, I think, an, an incredible example um, in, a, in a great IPO and continuing to innovate and continuing to grow. You know, synthetic biology being a relatively new industry that I think is a very significant IPO and a, and a big cornerstone of, of the future of the industry. Um, specifically in the food space, Beyond Meat obviously just blew everyone out of the water, just over, just blew everyone's expectations. Um, and a lot of the kind of more traditional tech software oriented plays or marketplace plays maybe, um, kind of underperformed, frankly, um, by the time they made it to Wall Street. Um, and the fact that Beyond Meat, um, you know, just skyrocketed and, and twisted so well. And even in the private side, um, you know, uh, Martech, algae company getting uh, acquired by DSM for over a billion dollars. Climate Corporation got acquired by Monsanto over a billion dollars. You know, not all these are consumer facing businesses or not all consumer brands, but they're very innovative um, and they reached the market relatively quickly and they had enormous exits. Yeah. And uh, places like Ginkgo Bioworks, again, on the private side that have raised a ton of capital and are showing a ton of promise to be the next twist potential um, out there and recently just spun off their uh, food initiative called uh, Motif Foodworks, uh, Motif Food Ingredients, um, with over $100 million in financing day one or roughly day one. Big push into food. And we think that there's a lot of potential in what they're promoting because it has that uh, ability to really revolutionize the game in terms of food production, ingredient production. I'd also say things like Pivot. Um, pivot bio sure. and, and things like that that are working on the agricultural side. Uh, mammoth biosciences. I mean, there's a, like a ton of companies out there right now. They're doing caribou, right? And, and, and ton of companies are doing bioscience based work that is going to have massive impact that, and they're taking massive rounds of financing. Now, the question is, um, is that massive rounds of financing going to turn into a profitable, productive business? And I think we're seeing now a new market come after, you know, the spate of potential IPOs with no profitable outcome, which is, I think biosciences will have to grow up too. And all the spend will have to then yield products and services like Twist that the market will appreciate, you know, once public. And so I think we're at that pivot point where we have all these companies that are well-funded, that have high expectations, and now they need to prove there's huge market opportunity, they're expanding, they're growing in the ways that will allow us to improve certain different aspects of our, of our industry, and ultimately, ideally, will be public market 
uh, darlings. Because I think that, to, to Rob's point about rising all tides, you know, that will rise all tides. Is when the biotech investors start to see those exits and those opportunities, then the whole industry will keep going. I think the inverse is what happened to the clean tech world, which was the companies had such lofty goals and they couldn't really achieve them. And they were, they were beset by a lot of both scientific and technical challenges as well as economic. Obviously, number one being economic challenges in that industry. And that's my biggest fear is that we have so much potential for these companies, but some of them are going to spaces where there's clear scientific hurdles that have yet to be overcome. And I, I love the clean meat industry. I love the cell ag industry or what they're calling now cultured meat. But there's some real scientific hurdles that have yet to be overcome to do this at scale. And so uh, we can't let our over-exuberance forget that there are basics for running a business, which is you have to produce product at a price point that people buy it, and you have to do it at scale such that enough of that product goes out of the door, right? Well, I think it's important to see ag tech uh, as clean tech. Agriculture is one of the largest polluters, and it's you know it's something that is essential to survival. We're going to need it. And I think clean tech was so tough because it was going after something like energy. Yeah. It was going after a, a utility. That's really tough. It's kind of starting from the bottom in terms of pricing. And then you know, food is interesting because it is it has such scale, but um, there's plenty of room for margin. You can run a great business if you have an innovation in agriculture today. I like what you said, which is we we need to think about this as clean tech because I think a lot of people are looking at innovations in the food system to be what I would call a twofer. You get the great thing for humans and you get the great thing for the planet at the same time, ideally nutrition and and, – and, and, and you can run a great business yeah. too. But I think if you look at like Beyond Meat and Impossible Foods, who I love both those companies. I eat their products fairly regularly. Everybody is coming down on them on their nutritional content. And ignoring the benefit for the planet by moving off of, you know, unsustainable, you know, protein uh, yeah, well, production. Well, overall, I think, you know, when you, if you're making a product, if you're a founder, uh, it's, it's really important to th- keep in mind the benefit that you can confer to the environment, but to grow the business, especially in early days, you have to do something for the consumer. Right. If the only benefit of your product is environmental, that's great, but it's going to be tough, especially if it's also a little pricier. You know, it's it's really hard to sell people only on sustainability. You have to have a product that does something for them, whether it's more nutrition, lower cost, tastes better, tastes different, better. You know, so I think a great target right now might be something like shelf life. You know, uh, we throw away a lot of food. It's not good for anyone's bottom line, and it's certainly not good for the environment. Well, and that's the thing was, uh, previously in our, in our previous food system, uh, shelf life enhancement was predicated by adding more chemicals to your product. And I think what we're getting to is there's a world where you can get shelf life without sacrificing, you know, the use of good products to help you get there, right? Like, again, I'll go back to appeal using food waste to actually create edible peels that, you know, stave off, you know, uh, uh, the, the spoilage of product. Like we're now unlocking the potential to do multiple things, but without the negative uh, connotations. Well, I, I hope that, you know, consumers will keep an open mind too. You know, like not all chemicals are, are bad. You know, we definitely need to, to test this stuff very rigorously and, you know, regulators need, need to keep up. I think by, by and large, they're doing, doing a fine job. But, uh, you know, new things can be scary to customers. And I think that it's kind of the job of industry and innovators to explain it in a way that makes sense and, and let them decide for themselves. For example, personally, I think food irradiation is an amazing technology. I can definitely, definitely see why people are skeptical about it and um, and maybe even a little afraid of it. But I think it's as simple as explaining the difference between radioactive and irradiated. It's totally, totally different. Why don't you explain what food, radi- irradiated food is? <laughs> so irradiated, if, if you walked outside today, you were irradiated. You were hit by sunlight and you were hit by radiation and you're still fine radioactive, then you would not be having a good day. (laughs) (laughs) 
<laughs> if, if you were radioactive. So radioactive means you are actually releasing, there's some a form of radioactive decay in alpha particles or beta particles, which are really, really bad because they can break your um, DNA bonds. Is, is, is happening. You know, radioactive is a very bad thing. And if you see a sign that something is radioactive, you should definitely go away. But if you see something, a sign that something is irradiated, that is totally different. You put something in the microwave. It was irradiated. And guess what? Now it's better. Now it's warmer. Now it, it, it kills some stuff. Uh, and you know, food irradiation, it made a huge impact in the, in the produce industry. A lot, it, it was a revolution, um, in terms of shelf life of produce, but there was a lot of consumer confusion around radiation. And, uh, to this day, there's a lot of pressure against it. And really, you know, I think that technology probably isn't the best today. You know, it's very complicated. You need a ton of very expensive, um, cumbersome, um, equipment. And, you know, the factories themselves are dealing with radioactive substances. So it's, it's not a, it's not a slam dunk by any means. But, you know, I think that we run into this a lot in terms of, you know, are, are preservatives scary? You know, uh, is, is a GMO a, a bad thing or a good thing? Um, these are really important conversations to have. And I think we shouldn't just dismiss something because it's new, or we especially shouldn't dismiss something because we don't understand it at first glance. Um, and we need to see technology as a tool. And, and yeah, you could make a GMO. That's probably not a very good thing for the environment or, or humans. But in fact, I think GMOs are a great thing for the environment and a great thing for human. We use fewer pesticides. Um, we, um, use fewer natural resources to grow them. We have less spoilage, more nutrition. Um, the GMOs that are on the market today, I think are a revolution in sustainability and in human health. But I think what you hit on something that's really important that I want to underscore for the for the podcasters, uh, the people listening, which is uh, consumer perception of some of these terms. And I think it goes both ways. I think it's on the science side, but I also think it's on the organic and natural side, which is people equate the terms like organic with healthy. And it has actually no relationship whatsoever. It's not been proven that organic products are necessarily that much healthier. It's, it's healthy for the margins of the liars. Exactly. Well, and, and I would say it, it requires some oversight that I don't think consumers understand, which is that agricultural practices that go organic are more expensive to go through. And so by saying that, you're saying, well, I want this product. I don't know why I want it. I think it's healthy or I think it's this. And so it's really dealing with the consumer perception around these terms. And by the way, the term natural, if you see it on any label, it's not regulated. People can put natural on whatever they want. There's no government standard for what the term natural is. You can means. also eat all, all natural rat poison. You know, it's not going to be exactly. good for you. As the same way that you can GMO a Twinkie, right? Yeah. <laughs> things, things like that. So I think like all these terms, I think, have some level of consumer misunderstanding. And one of my concerns or one of the things that we need to get better at as an industry is helping consumers understand what's good for them and good for the planet. And I think, look, our, our, our community right now is not doing any – anything to help the industry because everybody is very against each other. The organic movement is against the GMO movement. The GMO movement is trying to provide, provide scientific basis and background for what they're doing and that there's uh, that it's healthy and that there's no necessarily unintended consequence. I don't think either side is actually listening, though. I think they're stuck in their ways. And so one of the things that I hope we can do as proponents for the good food movement is just bring everybody to the table. Because I think that in in our model, in FTW's model, one plus one should equal three. If we get the best food people in the world and we get the best scientists in the world, they can solve just about any problem. It's the problem when they're sitting on other sides of the table and they don't want to move off of their thoughts. Um, and so I remember going to an event at a very, very prestigious location. It was a very private event, top like food manufacturers and big thinkers in the food movement. And I'm sitting across from someone who has a multi-billion dollar uh, food consortium. And I go, I do food science and food technology. And they go, oh, you build Frankenfoods. And I go, no, you use a, a mobile phone and a computer to like run your operation, right? Like, why aren't you using more technologies or more solutions to make your operation better? I'm like, it's not an, it's not an, 
either or it's an and exactly problem. i like to think about other industries if you know you applied that same logic like imagine you know if there were two types of banks there were the organic banks that did everything with pencil and paper and there were the franken banks that used computers and um there were even the ultra scary banks that used the blockchain <laughs> <laughs> and you know what if the consumers like oh you know i only bank or organic but my bank lost my money oops you know, because they couldn't keep track of all the things because they were using this old technology. You know, it's, it's insane that we would kind of pressure an industry to use the technology of the past simply for the sake of tradition. But know? there's nothing stopping us from using the science and technology to make organic food production better, right? And cheaper and easier. If that's what consumers want, how do we improve that industry? And so I constantly get into these battles of like, I'm not out there just trying to make meat in a lab. Like that's one avenue to improve the food system. There's so many other avenues. I think people forget to think of this thing as a system. It actually works from end to end from creation to consumption. And they forget to see that there's all these little pathways and problems that we may need to take a little diversion from our current norm to get to a better world. And it may involve them being a participant and not railing against these things. And so GMOs is a great example. I mean, you you took GMOs head on and put it in your marketing for Soylent. And that was a very, I assume, a very conscious effort. It led to a better product. Yeah. And, and, and so what was the origination of that conversation? Because how, how do we think about that becoming a new norm of people taking the risks and having that conversation? Because I felt the wrong thing was happening. I felt I saw a lot of fear, uncertainty, and doubt that was taking place for the sake of profit. And I thought that was wrong. Just zooming out for a sec. Where is there too few dollars going and where is there too much uh, money going? Like what is underrated or underinvested or underexplored? What is overhyped? You know, we should redirect attention and capital elsewhere. Well, while we're zooming out, I think that, you know, a lot of uh, startups focus on, on products themselves. And I think it's, it's really uh, great that people are uh, focused on physical products and consumable products and, um, you know, moving atoms rather than, than just bits. You know, I think that the digital revolution was amazing, but frankly, I think that a lot of that has conferred the free flow of information and that allows us to more efficiently focus on technology that really matters. Um, and a big one of the, of, uh, of those is food. Um, and so we need new food products. We need new ingredients, but, you know, uh, I think a lot of what's holding back the food system is, is also kind of some of these behind the scenes players like the distributors, retailers, food processors. Um, you know, there's a, there's a lot that goes in, into all this. And what, what are they doing that's holding things back? Same as, uh, you know, other industries just kind of, um, they've, they have their ironclad contracts or their ways of doing things, or they're just kind of, you know, dug in and, um, you know, not necessarily on the, on the consumer side and, and very resistant to change and innovation. And, you know, in, in terms of just opportunities in the food space, I want to just look at the product on the grocery store shelf, you know, look, uh, look at the shelf, look yeah. at the grocer, look at where the grocer bought those products, um, look at how they moved those products. You know, it, it, it really kills me that of the, of that product on the grocery store shelf, roughly 10% of that price is the ingredients. That is 90% chance to me. All those dollars went somewhere that is not going to the health of that buyer. Marketing and brand building, right? A lot of spend in that thing. I think to, to, to bubble that up to one term that we use a lot, which is asymmetric access to data. And so the retailers today have a huge amount of information that they don't share with their manufacturers or food producers, and they don't collect it. And so they don't know that a mother of three, 42 years old, has come in and has picked a, a bottle of Soylent or a Soylent bar or things like that off the shelf, looked at it, and then put it down, right? And when we talk about digitizing the food 
system overall, we're collecting that information. And that information has yet to freely flow be- between all the players. And so if you're a major food manufacturer or a new food manufacturer, you don't know how to put your product on the store shelf and get your highest value dollar. You have to spend with them marketing, end cap placement and things like that. I'm sure all these things that you guys went through. Don't get me started on end caps. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) I mean, these are all, I think, scourges of the industry because of the way the industry grew up. And now we're trying to tear down those walls. And so one of the things that a a large food manufacturer said to me is like, when I put a piece of fruit or a vegetable on a ship from South America to the US, I want to know where it's going to get its highest dollar before I put it on that ship. Because the second I put it on that ship, it's committed. And so they're using old antiquated information resources to get that data and predict where they should put that product. And I'm like, well, that's the huge value of having all this data and analytics in the system. And if you can't get out of the data, you can't analyze it and you can't report back in in a meaningful way, then it's going to hinder the whole industry figuring these things out. The outcropping of some of these creates a ton of problems. It's not just lost revenue potential because someone sold it for 80 cents versus a dollar. It's no, it was wasted in transport because some issue cropped up, like a big storm in the Pacific, you know, waylaid this ship and you lost product and things like that. And so avoiding things like food waste is probably one of our most underrated and undervalued problems right now. Some people will say, I, I don't have the stats kind of at my hand, but um, to feed 10 billion people on the planet, we really don't need productivity. We just need to get the wasted food, one third or 40% of the food that we produce, obviously increase productivity, but get that food back into the market, right? And it's like, it's unconscionable to me that we're not doing more to solve that problem, especially when people are macro and micronutrient deficient and there are people going hungry, even in America. We can throw a stone out here in San Francisco and probably find someone that doesn't have their current complement of protein and, and the nutritional composition. And I know that was what Soylent was trying to do was provide protein and nutrition for all, right? At the end of the day. It also has a long shelf life. And it has a long shelf life. And so like, there's not only the US problem of uh, making good food for rich people and people that can spend for organic and things like that. It's literally just solving the fact that there are still huge gaps in what people have access to and that there's so much wasted that could have been used. And so we look at the idea of how do we reduce data inaccuracy and data asymmetry so that all the players in the space can work on the same platform and understand what they need to do to put good product in market. I think also the other big trend that we're seeing is circumventing traditional retail and going direct to the consumer. I mean, you guys, you know, again, pioneered, pioneered this, which is the internet is a great democratizer, right? Anybody can reach someone and reach someone much more directly than you can by putting something on a store shelf. And so having that relationship with the customer also means you get data and potentially sell them a subscription to your product. And so there's all these added benefits when we start thinking about food as something that can be digitized. We can collect information on it. We can share that information. And the users will benefit by having access to more product than a conventional store would hold. I mean, I think we're still waiting for the Amazon of food, even though Amazon is trying to become the Amazon of food, Um, food. where anybody can launch their own products, get it to market, get it to consumers, find their audience. Um, But we're still seeing things like Thrive Market. And I was just talking to the milk guys that are doing – we're doing uh, uh, vegan foods but are expanding beyond that very rapidly. By the way, in most countries, Amazon does not have the monopoly. 
that exactly. it does in the U.S. Like in the U.K., there are online grocery stores that do very, very, very well. Yeah. And, and, and there's, and they are moving more digitally native just in general when new companies start up because the whole millennial and next generation movement is so tethered to their devices. And so we talk a lot to the uh, grocers uh, outside of the U.S. Uh, specifically, we're talking to grocers in Japan and Canada and, and other regions where it's like, no, we assume people are going to come in. If you've ever seen, uh, I don't know if you've ever seen Hema, the, the Alibaba grocery stores in China fully digitized. You literally go in and scan QR codes. You don't have to pick up any product. And they literally have these bags flying overhead that are collecting your stuff. I mean, it's like, it's like, it's like Wonderland. I mean, the original grocery stores in in the US were full service. That was the default. You would go to the grocery with a list and the grocery would go to all the shelves, gather all of your goods and give it to you. You would stand still. It was an innovation to basically cut costs um, and have bigger footprint stores. Um, a lot of it was pioneered by Piggly Wiggly, very yeah. innovative company, if you didn't know, yeah. <laughs> in the, which was in co- uh, copied by um, Walmart, yeah. Sam Walton. So I think maybe, you know, going back to that a little bit, this concierge food um, provider, but again, food is a natural product. Yeah. You know, there's a lot of variation. And I think a lot of people are probably going to be hesitant to buy something like produce on an app. You know, it's not like an iPhone where everyone's basically the same. You know, a lot of people are going to want to see and feel and, and, and touch these products. But I also think there's so many products. I mean, it's just like uh, such a bloat of, of skews. You know, I kind of think, you know, in the future, do we think that it's going to, the stores are going to be more Walmart, like hundreds of thousands of skews or more like Costco. And personally, I think there's going to be a bit of a flight to quality and, and cost that a lot of those lower quality skews people just really don't need. Right. Um, and retailers should think about, uh, really, really carefully before every skew that they add. Well, going back to your point about AWS for the food system, like not just in the synthetic biology side, but AWS for the supply chain is another big thing. Like Flexport comes around and it reinvents, you know, shipping and logistics um, for 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 a lot of uh, uh, what's going on in the world. But when we talk about the food system, there's complexities with building a food company that are beyond just, like you say, putting a consumer product like on a shelf, right? If you're making an ice cream, you have to have cold chain management. And so how do you keep that thing cold from manufacturing to the consumer's home? And those things still are yet to be pioneered. We know of a, a Skunk Works project that's by some very, very famous uh, founders that are building cold chain management to rival UPS, basically. And you'll have these freezer trucks running around the city that hopefully one day will be autonomous as well. And so like the great thing is the food world also steals technologies from all the other areas. Like I think what was it? Uh, was it uh, the first self-driving internal truck movement was moving beer or something like that or like i remember like i was like yes we move a ton of food products every single day and so like all these technologies that are on the cutting edge will also hopefully benefit the food industry but that whole supply chain the whole infrastructure is currently able to be rethought and and has to be rethought. yeah well, yeah look at the infrastructure i mean budweiser became budweiser not because of the beer but their logistics that's right they they basically they, they pioneered they had the best train cars they had these refrigerated train cars um and so they could move consistent beer farther and better and cheaper and they won not because of the beer but because of the distribution and i think similarly we should look not just at you know what's in the truck but the truck you know someone invented a better um oh man a better refrigerator a better compressor you know i'm really into oh i just saw lower power refrigerator uh i think that'll uh, be enormous you know look at look at air conditioning because they're running 24 7 at like all these facilities freezing air conditioning like these are the big ones they're they're huge infrastructure spends and energy and cost and it's like i think we forget that this industry does a consume a lot of resources but has a lot of efficiencies yet to gain from technology Going back to your point, though, overinvested, I would agree with Rob on the idea that packaged goods. Like, I get so many packaged good pitches in my inbox, and like, they go 
like nobody's business because everybody wants to be in the next Beyond Meat business. And I'm like, that's cool and all, but we don't need the 50th jerky company or 20th bottled water company. I mean, like there's a, there's a bottled water with caffeine company I saw at an event last year. And I was like, is there a market for this? And do we yet need to expand that shelf to a million things? Maybe there is a niche market. I don't know. But it's like, is that where all of our energy, time and money needs to go right now? Or do we need to rethink like what is coming from water and how do we get water to more places and how do we do the packaging for water? Like, is there other things around some of these massive categories? I think that's where the CPG companies are, are focused on is like they want to buy that next brand that's going to extend their line. They don't think about reinventing their line. But for, for these, for these brands, I mean, it's really hard to break through. Yeah. You know, a lot of, a lot of like brand, like CPG investors won't even really talk to you until you have like a, a million in revenue or so, which is really hard to get to. I, I, I mean, it used to, to be ten. like, yeah, it used to be like 10. Um, because there's just such a, a graveyard of these, of these products it didn't go so far. And it could be whatever reason. It could be timing. Maybe they launched at the wrong season. Maybe they didn't make the right pitch to the right grocery buyer at the same time. It's, it's really hard to break through in these consumer brands. I mean, there is always an angle and I, I think it's definitely worth going after. But, you know, if, if you're more of a scientist, innovation, deep tech person, you know, look, look at the ingredients, look at the packaging, look at the manufacturing. I mean, these big CBG companies are probably looking for, you know, Soylent wouldn't have been possible without aseptic manufacturing. It's, it's a, you know, a relatively new technique. You know, if we were processing, processing it like the way people process milk, it, it never would have happened, you know. So I, something like using, using focused microwave in, instead of steam in these facilities. I mean, which I'm sure you would believe these old food factories are not are not you know space age <laughs> i mean they're everything from i mean we're not at the jungle situation right now no thankfully. it's not that bad the, yeah. but there's there's still definitely a lot of room i mean that has difficulties too it's it's tough to sell to a you know a plant manager you know he has his um he has his line and he probably doesn't want to change it but you know the companies themselves this is the sort of thing they're looking out, out for you know manufacturing technology if you're an early stage entrepreneur we'd love to hear from you please hit us up at villageglobal.vc slash network catalyst.